Eagles Entertainment. Eagle Eye in the Sky is fueled by Gatorade, the official sports drink of the Philadelphia Eagles. Everything that moves, I don't care who it is. Let's go. Give me everything you got. Play fast, play hard. Let's beat these boys tonight in their house. It's party time. It's party time. Let's go. You're listening to the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast. Now here's your host, Brand Duffy. That's right of the week, and we're on to the Giants as the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast, fueled by Gatorade, continues. I'm Fran Duffy, and as always, I think we've got a great show for you here on episode number 280. At the top of this week's show, we've got Chalk Talk, where I chat with Ben Fennell about the Eagles' Week 7 matchup against the New York Giants on Thursday Night Football. Speaking of Giants... Ben is a giant part of the production of Eagles game plan. And with that in mind, we will talk about what went into getting this show ready on a short week, the keys to victory for the Eagles, and some big matchups and stats for this game all at the top of the show in Chalk Talk. After that, Ben and I will go through our scouting report segment. And this week, I wanted to focus on one of the flag carriers on this team, one of the guys that uh, they really rely on to be a disruptor for them defensively, and that is defensive tackle Dexter Lawrence, one of their first-round picks in 2019. They took him in the first round a year ago and he quickly has become one of the best players on that team either offensively or defensively but what is his ceiling we will cover that in scouting report before we get there though just a one thing I wanted to hit on again the best way to throw us your support is to go into Apple Podcasts or Stitcher leave us a rating or leave us a comment and I would leave a if you leave a question on there we'll be sure to respond to it right here on the show that being said uh, I talked about Eagles game plan we talked about my chat here with Ben Fennell let's jump into it now it's time for for Chalk Talk. Let's get down to business. It's time for Chalk Talk. Well, back for another edition of Chalk Talk here on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast, fueled by Gatorade, my friend Ben Fennell. And Ben, uh, a little bit of a short week. We're recording this on Tuesday afternoon. We usually record this on Wednesdays. But obviously, with the Eagles playing on Thursday night, we wanted to turn this bad boy around for everybody uh, to be able to take in your knowledge and your wisdom and your you know your feel for this Giants team on both sides of the football. And uh, look, obviously, for, for Eagles game plan this week, which will be up on PhiladelphiaEagles.com on Thursday, make sure you tune into that, uh, as well as Thursday night if you're local here to the area. Thursday night at 7 on NBC 10, a little bit of a special time here, uh, obviously, with the Thursday night game. Um, But the the big topics that we focused on both sides of the ball – Giants defense, right? So you're talking about the, the front diversity, the coverage consistency, and then the, the Greg Cosell lexicon. We talked about that earlier this week with Greg. And then on the offensive side, really it's about Darius Slayton, right, and just the importance of keeping him bottled up. Let's just go over to the, the Giants defense. Uh, what were your thoughts, I guess, coming away, watching the scheme? We've seen plenty of it in the past because I feel like, you know, between uh, Detroit, obviously New England, uh, and then now with uh, with the New York Giants, Miami Dolphins in the past as well, uh, Eagles have seen plenty of this Belichick-style system. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, our first short week of the season. You know, yeah. it's a short week for these gladiator players playing on Sunday and Thursday, but it's a short week for us in the media department, too. So that means going through that film study that much faster on Monday and getting our show out. Uh, everything's ramped up. But this Giants defense really hasn't been playing that bad in 2020. You know, under new D.C., Patrick Graham, who uh, came over from the Dolphins previously with the the Packers. But really, he's from that New England coaching tree where he spent a lot of his time, I think, from 2009 to about 2016. He was with the uh, the Patriots in a variety of roles where they like to really move around their defensive assistants. He was D-line coach, DB's coach, defensive backs coach, linebackers coach, defensive assistant. 
very diverse coaching scheme there. And you see it, you know, in their defense with their, you know, versatile fronts, their versatile plays on the back end, New England and the Giants hand in hand on third down playing press coverage, man coverage in a high, high volume of two man coverage. But essentially it all comes off of that man to man kind of foundational scheme with the coverage. But defensively, I've kind of enjoyed some of the new parts. You know, they have Blake Martinez and Kyler Fackrell coming over from Green Bay, definitely active athletic players there. And just, you know, trying to figure out the back end. I think Jabril Peppers is still trying to figure out his role in that kind of hybrid safety role. Is he the Patrick Chung of the defense? It feels like everybody has some sort of New England personality to their usage and the way they're deployed in this defensive scheme. So it's going to take them a year or two to get the right personnel and the right Jimmys and Joes in order to execute the X's and O's, as we like to say. That's right. Yeah, and to me, I think it was really – I thought that was a good point by you. I completely forgot. I had researched Patrick Graham when he got hired in Miami last year and just kind of get a sense of his background. I forgot that he was in Green Bay. So I guess that's the connection there by them bringing in Blake Martinez and Kyler Fackrell. There was crossover there. Yeah, I believe so. I think uh, he was only in Green Bay for a year. That was 2018, that last year under Mike McCarthy, which was obviously pretty tumultuous. But he was linebackers coach and run game coordinator. So very interesting coaching background, you know, having dabbled on both sides of the ball with that kind of hybrid run game coordinator. But at the end of the day, from the New England tree, goes over to Brian Flores in Miami for a year. Also a, you know, team with a heavy New England tree and influence. So I feel like it all kind of comes full circle with uh, where these guys uh, eventually, you know, initially started their coaching careers. Yeah, just the notes from when I did that research, you know, this is just like from the notes that I put when he got hired in Miami is that the defense is going to be multiple up front, ton of man coverage in the back end, as we've already kind of established here. He demands that his players are very smart and versatile. They want selfless guys who are willing to work hard. Uh, they want heavy-handed kids up front. And when you look at that front, the way that they're built, they've got some pieces. I feel like that's the strength of that group, right, is that defensive line. You're talking Dexter Lawrence, who we're going to talk about later, Dalvin Tomlinson, Leonard Williams, even the backups in B.J. Hill and, and R.J. McIntosh. They, they come through, and they've got guys that are heavy-handed. They place value on good knee bend, leverage, uh, eye discipline, heavy focus on toughness and ability to stop the run that's the idea for Patrick Graham um, you know and so to me kind of looking at some of the pieces that they've brought in and the pieces that they've got working off of it you even just look at, at these New England teams in the past they're never built off like one key pass rusher it's like all right we're going to scheme things up uh, up front we're going to focus on being technically sound and, and we're going to scheme things up from a pass rush standpoint and I think that's kind of the 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 template that they've already got built. Now it's just a matter of continuing to add more pieces uh, for him to be able to play with. Yeah. And I think it's a great foundation with Joe judge, <clears throat> excuse me. who's 38 years old. Patrick Graham is 41 years old. I just like to reflect back, you know, they're sitting there in 2012 in new England, Joe right. judge, special teams assistant, you know, Patrick Graham coaching the D line. I just imagine on a rainy day, they looked at each other, you know, you know, if I ever get a head coaching job, I'm going to bring you over from my DC. You know, it's just funny that, you know, where these guys eventually grab their coaching staffs and their right. connections. Usually at some point they had a relationship, they worked together, they were in that boiler room with a coaching staff, you know, really putting together the game plan and the nuts and bolts on the ground floor. It's just really fun to see, you know, 10 years later, these guys are a head coach and defensive coordinator. You know, it's just nice to see that evolution of the coaching, you know, assistants working their way up. 
So the, every week here on this episode, we try and like pick one aspect of the opponent and kind of do like a football one-on-one kind of discussion about something schematic with them, whether it's offensively or defensively. And, and this week, with this team leading the league right now in reps of playing cover two man, you know, I, I thought let's, let's kind of break down two man coverage the strengths, the weaknesses, what it looks like, what it means for the offense. Uh, it's one of my favorite coverages in football. I know I'm pretty sure it's one of yours as well. Take us through, if you can, take us through uh, what cover two man looks like and then, you know, what, what the strengths and weaknesses are of the coverage. Well, firstly, just the terminology, because this is one that's a bit of a Rolodex labeling. Cover two man, two man, two deep, man under. Some yeah. may just call it two trail because oftentimes those man coverage defenders underneath are what's in what's called a trail technique, where they're actually playing behind the receivers in order that to funnel them to those two deep safeties over top. So now the visual is man coverage underneath, two deep safeties. That forces quarterbacks to have to layer throws over the underneath defenders in front of the deep defenders. becomes very tough having the two deep safeties and tight man coverage. So where do you often want to attack that? The horizontal pass game, those crossing routes over the middle of the field, maybe can squeeze in a little rub route, a little pick with that. Maybe more designed rubs and picks to get off that man coverage. You know, other man-beating concepts, the bunches, confusing defensive backs by releasing in close proximity, making sure they're on their P's and Q's with the man-to-man coverage and releasing from those bunches. And at the end of the day, it's a two-deep coverage. You still want to attack the two-deep safeties. How do you do that? Vertical routes, all-go concepts, where you have routes going down the sidelines and maybe something streaming down the middle there. So, you know, that's kind of the, the nexus of two-man, the pros of it. You're disrupting at the line of scrimmage, typically in press coverage. You still have two-deep safety. So you're giving those corners help over the top, allowing them to be aggressive. You can tell them to disrupt the line of scrimmage. Maybe they can cheat a little more and go for that violent two-handed jam because if they miss, they're right in that trail position that they're supposed to be in, and they have help over the top. So it allows them to be much more aggressive underneath with the help over the top. Now, the issue with that, it's typically a third-down coverage. Two-man, you're designating two deep safeties on third down. That means you have less threats to maybe add to the pressure scheme where guys, you want to crowd the line of scrimmage. And just thinking back to who we just played, you know, the Ravens, the Steelers, what do they do on third down, Fran? Load up that line of scrimmage. Let's go. We're putting six, seven, eight guys on the line of scrimmage. Who's coming? Who's going? They want to just absolutely blitz the pocket and blitz the protection. Not the Giants. They're going to sit back there and too deep and let you know what they're doing as far as pressure-based concepts go. And it's a much different style. So pros and cons certainly to, uh, you know, deploying the too deep man under coverage. Yeah, and that's the thing. And I thought you did it. That was First of all, that was outstanding in terms of all the different points that you were to hit on. It's it's one of my favorite coverages because you do go kind of into attack mode, uh, especially if you're using it. You mentioned it's a primarily third down coverage. And so you're protecting yourself against the deep ball with two high safeties. You've got aggressive man coverage underneath if you've got a four-man rush that can win and that's the one downside that doesn't quite go from a personnel standpoint because what did I say earlier the these New England style teams they typically don't utilize one key passer they're not they're not prioritizing guys that can win quickly along the defensive line right they're that's not the type of players they go for so now when you get into this kind of scenario where you've got two you know you've got two deep safeties and man coverage if you've got a defensive line that can win, that can win quickly and impact the quarterback, 
awesome. Now you've got guys, you've got, you're allowing your defensive line to be able to get home with this team. I think that's kind of the downside is that, yeah, you're going to play that man coverage, but who are, who up front is going to be able to win for you. And that, and that's where they're, you know, they, sometimes you do get in trouble uh, from that standpoint, but what that does lend yourself to, and we covered that. That was one of the reasons why we picked the play that we did for Greg Cosell to break down in this week's show is that you've got that two-man coverage. If you don't have guys that can straight up win one-on-one, well, now you can kind of get creative in terms of using different stunts and different front alignments to try and uh, win the, you know, get those guys into advantageous situations. So this past week against Washington, what did we see New York do? They put uh, Kyler Fackrell and Blake Martinez up on the line of scrimmage, and they ran a stunt with those two guys, not necessarily guys you would necessarily expect to line up on the line and run a stunt together, and they were able to get home. They confused the left side of the Washington defensive line. It turns into a sack fumble, and it goes the other way for a touchdown. That's what I think you start to see really from uh, these style of systems is if you don't have that, you know, the big time pass rusher, either at D tackle or at DN, now you're going to see more stunts and twists, different uh, guys lined up on the line of scrimmage to try and create some, some confusion for that offensive line. Yeah, and one other major uh, vulnerability of the two deep man under coverage is it's still man to man. So it leaves the threat of quarterback runs. Oh, great you're, point. Yep. You're, you're turning and running. Our quarterback is, you know, obviously willing to extend the play, willing to break the pocket, willing to take off if he sees underneath green grass or even deep green grass. He's not afraid to, you know, break some tackles and get down the field. So, you know, this New York football team this season has played, you know, Ben Roethlisberger. He's not moving. Jared Goff, he's not moving. Last week, the Washington football team, not a whole lot of mobility in their quarterbacks as well. So seeing Carson Wentz this week, I wonder if the Giants have a little bit of conflicting styles right now to say, hey, if we're going to play too deep man under, we better have a quarterback spy and keep somebody's eyes on that quarterback. That, I was just going to say, I think I've, what, one thing we've seen from them in the past, and this isn't just a New York thing or a Patrick Graham thing, it's a New England thing as well, is when they do go two-man against a mobile quarterback, it will just be a three-man rush, and they will drop one of those players. You know, Imagine if it was the scenario I just kind of outlined uh, where you've got Martinez and Fackrell. Whether it's Martinez or Fackrell, you know, they'll line up on the line of scrimmage, and then they'll fall out as a spy and just kind of keep an eye on the quarterback. I wonder if that's what they'll do. But like, uh, what did we just account for? Man coverage, that's five defenders. Two deep safeties, Mm -hmm. that's two more defenders. A quarterback spy. Now we've already accounted for eight defenders on the Three-man rush, yep. So the rushing and the pressure package identity is not as deep and versatile as we've seen the previous two weeks against the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Baltimore Ravens, which are as exotic, versatile, deep as you're going to see in the NFL. No, that's a great point. I think that that's the kind of the big takeaway when you look at that defense is that, uh, you know, it's going to be a lot different than what the Eagles have seen over the last couple of weeks. Definitely more of a coverage focus uh, as opposed to turning up the heat. They've got 15 sacks so far this year, which I think is, is probably more than uh, – it's certainly more than they had last year uh, at this time. And I think ultimately, you know, you're looking for improvement there. That certainly is a big part of it. You look at their blitz numbers um, – Look, they're they're 10th in the league right now in terms of blitz percentage, which, I mean, obviously that's top half of the league right now. Uh, it's certainly not to the level of, of, of uh, Pittsburgh and Baltimore. But, uh, yeah, I, I think it'll be interesting to see just the, the different kind of style. The first time in a couple of weeks now we've seen a different kind of style defensively. Let's go over to the other side of the ball. and Well, really quick, Fran, just yeah, put a bow on that defense. And yeah, just yeah. like in just an elevator speech, watching the tape, going through the numbers, reflecting on where they are metric-wise through the rest of the league. 
I was kind of surprised on how good the defense had been playing. Hmm. Obviously, this is a one in five football team. They're rebuilding. They're going through some issues, some growing pains, obviously. But the defensive side is actually playing okay football. And I think that's reflective not only on the film, but in the metrics as well. So I was a little bit taken back. I thought I was going to see a, you know, a team struggling on both sides of the ball. But I was pleasantly surprised with the defense. Yeah, I mean, half their snaps are in nickel, uh, mm-hmm. you know, 17% in dime, uh, 2% actually in dollar with seven defensive backs on the field, the rest in base. So they're, they're playing a little bit more base that certainly than the other teams that we had just seen as well. So you're going to see a, a lot of variety. It, it's Look, the, the personnel, I would say it's not. It's certainly not great. Uh, you have uh, the, some of the best players, I think, as I mentioned, are along the defensive line. You look at Williams, he's leading their team in pressures right now, which necessarily has not been uh, his bag, I guess, throughout the course of his NFL. NFL career has been more of a run defender than a pass rusher um, but I think when you look overall at the pieces they're, they're trying to mix and match and find different ways to create some matchups for those guys so I mean you uh, put up you allowed 17 points to Chicago you lost yep. you know you allowed 17 points to the Rams and lost yeah you know so they're not they're not getting the doors blown off and the brakes beaten each week on the defensive side of the ball no it's a good point that's a really good point. But I think a lot of that is, as you mentioned, you know, the defense uh, limiting the opposing team's offense. They have not been able to return the favor on the opposite side. You know, they're averaging under 17 points a game on the offensive side of the football right now. Obviously, you lose Saquon Barkley, and that was a huge shot for them. Uh, the offensive line has not performed up to snuff. You know, I think Craig Cosell you know, said that uh, earlier this week that, um, you know, they, they expected the offensive line to be better than where they are right now. You know, Andrew Thomas, they took in the top five. He has not had a great year so far as a rookie. It's still early, but has not had a great year so far. Uh, Cameron Fleming is, uh, you know, solid at right tackle, but not a guy that uh, is going to be an impact starter. And then, you know, at center, Nick Gates is another guy that, um, you know, he was a former undrafted free agent, but they're not getting great center play uh, at the moment either. So uh, yeah, I think when you look at the offensive line, that has kind of kept them from really get, getting things going. Uh, they really relied on Saquon and his playmaking ability, not just in the run game, but also in the pass game as well, on those vertical routes from the backfield. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just unfortunate to not get the immediate production and quality play out of Andrew Thomas, who is a top 10 pick. Then Xavier McKinney, their second round pick, obviously yep. out for the year, I believe, on IR. Not sure what he's dealing with, but anytime you have a young team and then having some issues with getting that young, high draft capital on the field, one on each side of the ball. We already know about the injury to Saquon Barkley, injuries at other positions as well. This team obviously isn't operating at, at full full go here, but at this point in 2020, who is? Yeah, that's, I mean, the, the third round pick is Matt Parrott. He was the backup to Andrew Thomas. He got his first start with Thomas. Yeah, he started this last week, week correct. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, they're, they're not getting huge dividends uh, from that draft class yet. But I, I think when you look at uh, what they did in free agency, a lot of guys have played a lot of snaps for them. The one, look, when you look at their offensive sta- uh, personnel right now, to me, I'm interested to kind of get your thoughts on Daniel Jones, and we'll talk a little bit about him soon. But uh, Darius Slayton has been their game breaker, right? I mean, he is the big play threat. I, w- I watched all of his targets this year. I watched all of his targets last year as well. Um, you know, a lot of posts, a lot of fades. He's done some nice things, though. I mean, dig routes, they, they love running the dagger concept where you'll get a vertical route from the slot and he'll be outside and run a dig route uh, into the middle of the field, into the void. Uh, they, they've run that uh, successfully a couple of times so far this year. But he is, the, he is their big play guy for sure in the passing game. I mean, if it's going more than 15 yards downfield, it's more often than not it's going to Darius Slayton. Yeah, absolutely. This is a team that doesn't field a whole lot of receivers. I mean, oh. last, last week alone, I think they they literally played three receivers in the course of an entire NFL game. That was Darius Slayton, Golden Tate, and then the rookie Austin Mack out of Ohio State. 
it's really kind of an alarmingly thin receiver room, but it's kind of what a lot of teams are going through. I don't know if the Giants really expected to be that competitive of team at full health anyway. So, you know, let's figure out who we have going forward, who's a cornerstone piece, who's a young guy we can maybe develop now that they get an opportunity to show themselves, whether that's a Nick Gates or a Matt Pert or, you know, even a, you know, Chris Board showing up at wide receiver last week. So that was actually four receivers, but just an interesting makeup of the offense. Yeah, I mean, Sterling Shepard, they counted on to be a, a number two or number three receiver. Yep. He's on injured reserve right now. Cody Core, I think they expected to be their fourth receiver and special teamer. He's on injured reserve right now. David Stills had a nice camp, a former undrafted free agent out of uh, out of West Virginia. Uh, he is on injured reserve right now. So, yeah, they're, they're, you know, their receiver room was hit pretty hard uh, by injury uh, coming into this year, you know, from what they had coming into the year. I also I think, wonder what the plan was with Andrew Thomas. They had Nate yeah. Solder, obviously high-dollar uh, tackle free agent a couple of years ago. Uh, they went and readdressed the tackle position with the top 10 draft capital. So not sure what they envisioned the, the future of the O-line to kind of look like. Maybe Solder goes back over to right tackle, where I think he had played a little bit for the Patriots. Mm. I don't know, Sebastian Vollmer. But anyways, uh, yeah, obviously some moving parts over there with the Giants. Yeah, and Thomas had played left tackle and right tackle at Georgia. So perhaps yeah, they yeah. kind of viewed him as maybe the right tackle to start before moving him over to left tackle eventually. Um, the other explosive weapon they've got offensively is Evan Ingram. And they have not been using him that way. It's been a lot of quick game stuff, you know, sticks and shallows and uh, slant routes, nothing really down the seam, nothing vertically to take advantage of that 4-4 speed. Um, but certainly a guy that you have to worry about. And he has hurt the Eagles in the past. You know, my, my guess is that we'll see plenty of Will Parks uh, in this game. A lot of, you know, because I think when you look, as you mentioned, they're limited in terms of their 11 personnel package right now. They don't have a ton of receivers on the roster. So, you know, you expect to see plenty of 21, plenty of 12, plenty of 13, uh, the tight end room. I mean, Caden Smith plays a lot of snaps. Levine Tolololo plays a lot of snaps. Um, So I think when you look at those guys, if they're going to be in the game, my guess is you'll see plenty of big nickel, big dime with Will Parks in the game. And I imagine he'll be matched up against some of these tight ends, especially Evan Ingram, for a good chunk of the matchup. Yeah, I wish they would, you know, use Evan Ingram a little bit more. Let him really help out the offense, whether it's yards after catch or using that 4-4 vertical speed. They get a really nice explosive chunk play to start the game last week, and then they seem to go quiet. So I want to just see him be a little bit more of the the focal piece, especially with, you know, Shepard and Barkley out. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that Ingram – look, Darius Slayton's got 41 targets, right? He leads the team. Evan Ingram's got 38. I mean, he's only three targets behind. It's just that those targets are not, like, in the area where you – they're not, like um – impactful targets they're not in the, the as I mentioned it's all like really short stuff and they're expecting him to go and try and make a play they're not you know they're not big play targets so um you know that's kind of the the big thing there run game uh Devontae Freeman is, is kind of the the lead horse at this point um you know Deion Lewis is a change of place player uh Wayne Gallman is the backup but Freeman is the guy most of their big runs have come off gap schemes so it's a lot of counter a lot of power a lot of g schemes some duo runs uh which is it works because the last couple of teams the Eagles have faced have been a lot of gap scheme runs Baltimore was a gap scheme team uh Pittsburgh a gap scheme team so uh you had that stretch of a lot of zone action and we talked about that as they got ready to play Pittsburgh is all this a little bit of a change in what the Eagles have seen and now the last couple of weeks has been primarily uh, uh gap scheme runs the one aspect of zone running that I think you'll get is those zone reads where you know Daniel Jones is definitely a threat to keep it and that's honestly that's been their most successful weapon uh, on the ground is Daniel Jones kind of keeping it and making plays with his legs 
Well, I think that was one of the things I left out on the cutting room floor for the show, Fran, this week yeah. was, was the New York run game. And, you know, we had so much attention to Lamar Jackson and the Ravens and that QB design run game. The Giants will dabble with it, too, and it may not come in the same package as a Lamar Jackson caliber of athlete, but Daniel Jones can boogie. This kid can run, did it in college. I vividly remember him, a 70 or 80-yard run, I think, against North Carolina, where he seemingly went right through the defense at a, nearly a 50-yard run, I think, last week as well. So he's a guy that will take off on you, whether in structure or out of structure. But I love that they give him some QB follow concepts and, you know, a couple things that really use his size. I think that's part of his ability, you know, being a big frame, strong athletic quarterback. And that was to me, like, that'll flow directly into my point that like, I wish we had, like, talked a little bit more about on the show is that the numbers obviously aren't good. The weapons aren't there. We talked about this, the, the issues on offense. Well, I, I, I do feel that Daniel Jones is a little bit better than he's given credit for, you know, uh, in terms of the consensus, in terms of the media. Like, I, I do feel that this kid uh, has some ability, and hopefully that they're able to kind of – I mean, not hopefully for Eagles, but hopefully for, for their sake, they're able to surround him uh, with better weapons, better offensive line, better run game moving forward. I think he's, he's got some tools to be able to work with. He throws a beautiful deep ball. Uh, he's tough. He, he'll stay in the pocket. He knows how to navigate the pocket and kind of avoid the rush. Uh, you mentioned the athleticism is there. Uh, I, I this kid shows some uh, some ability. I think he's got an NFL starting tool. So I'm interested to see uh, continue to watch his development because even now you can still see the flashes and say like, all right, like this kid's got it. Um, you know, I wish we had got a chance to kind of show a little bit more of that. Uh, this is not a kid that's just going to roll over and die uh, against this Eagles pass rush. And I do expect that the Eagles will get to them, be able to get to him. And that's kind of my matchup. We'll flow right into that. Uh, my one-on-one matchup I'll be watching. Just these Eagles defensive tackles against the interior rush uh, are the interior blockers of the New York Giants. You look at left guard, uh, you know, Will Hernandez. You look at the center, Nick Gates. You look at the right guard, Kevin Zeitler. Guard play is solid. I would say that they're better run blockers than they are pass protectors. But Nick Gates is a guy I think that they, you know, they can try and create some matchups on reports early. You know, we don't know anything as of this recording that Malik Jackson might be a little bit banged up for this game and not be able to go. But even still, you look at Fletcher Cox. You look at uh, at, uh, Javon Hargrave. If you look at Hassan Ridgeway, who had a nice TFL with a nice quick swim move this past week. I look at those guys and say, that's a matchup that the Eagles can try and win and take advantage of in this game. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really great matchup. Mine was actually an interesting conceptual matchup. And I really want to see the Eagles screen game against the Giants linebackers. And we could go right for, you know, big bad Jason Kelsey, who's one of the best in the open field. We saw last week him absolutely plant a safety uh, on the third level of a big run of Miles Sanders. Um, But the screen game defense of the Giants, we saw them struggle against the Niners a couple weeks ago with Blake Martinez. And now they're starting to work in uh, the Georgia rookie, Tay Crowder, who, you know, neither of those are really that fleet of foot type of player. I think Blake Martinez is more of the football IQ, reliable, good tackling machine. But, you know, Tay Crowder is kind of a four, seven, five type of thumper linebacker as well. So if you want to get those slower linebackers on the field, maybe some base personnel and then attack them in the screen game, you know, with these athletic offensive linemen that the Eagles have, like Jason Kelsey, I just think that's an area that definitely attack of those Giants. I thought the 49ers put out a great formula a couple weeks ago. Who's your, yeah, give us a, a, your favorite stat of this of the week coming into this matchup. 
You know, I want to give Daniel Jones some credit. Um, Mm -hmm. Like you were saying, I I want the game to slow down for him just a little bit. I don't feel like he's that decisive. He's struggling with his time to throw. He's 30th right now holding on to the ball, but they have 13 drops on the offensive side of the ball. It's the fourth most in the league. He's just not getting any help with his playmakers, the injury, the offensive line. Um, so the offensive, you know, production for them has just really struggled. And my stat of the week is just up front. Pressures are allowed 109 so far. That's 31st. And then the pressure rate, which is reflective on how many dropbacks you have, highest in the NFL, nearly 50% of dropbacks having some sort of pressure tied into it. Hmm. So collectively, Daniel Jones is under fire and not getting a whole lot of help. So tough, you know, tough sledding for a sophomore quarterback, but I think he's obviously more the solution than the problem. Let's figure out what else can we improve. Yeah, I, as I said earlier, I think he's better than given credit for. I'm interested to see if they're able to kind of surround surround him with better talent moving forward, uh, you know, if he can be a guy that they can, you know, move forward with in the future. All right, what's uh, – give us some stuff from, from the notebook here uh, from other teams and other games you've watched from around the league this week. All right, a couple things just stat-wise here. I got, you know, the leading receiver in the NFL down the field right now, Fran. Who do you think that is? Who's catching uh, all the bombs down well, the field? I believe I saw your tweet earlier, so I, I believe that would be Minnesota receiver Justin Jefferson. Absolutely. Kirk Cousins leads the NFL in throwing the ball down the field. But Justin Jefferson, a guy who played a lot of slot at LSU, ran 4-4. People question if you'd be a down-the-field guy or an even outside-the-number guy in the NFL, proving people wrong. Tyler Boyd leading the NFL in slot receptions, proven to be a really good, reliable target for Joe Burrow. Leaders in running back receptions. Alvin Kamara, obviously way out in front. Number two and number three might surprise you, though. Number two, Mike Davis, Carolina Panthers. Mm. Even without Christian McCaffrey, they're going to throw to the backs no matter who's in there. Number three, Miles Gaskin and the Miami Dolphins. Second-year player at the University of Washington, uh, who is a really productive player out there. Nice to see him catch the ball out of the backfield. Uh, a couple other things. Devin White being used much more aggressively under Todd Bowles this year. He had 14, excuse me, he had 13 QB pressures last year. He already has 14 this year. Jeez. And, and absolutely terrorized the Packers in the run and pass game. Go ahead and watch that tape of him and Levante David. Really impressive performance. And my last nugget, the quarterback in the league with the quickest time to attempt. Who's getting that ball out immediately this year? Can we tell can we tell can we tell the listeners about when you first asked me this question and how quickly I was able to respond with the correct answer? Yeah, you came out right <laughs> with it. I just didn't feel it was the most household name because this is a guy that traditionally yep. would hold on to the ball, love to extend the play, love to shake off defensive linemen in the pocket and break the pocket and a little bit of old school play. I don't know if we've realized how much he's changed stylistically. Number one, age, number one, injury. I don't know if he could throw anymore. And that's Ben Roethlisberger of the Pittsburgh Steelers, who look like to be one of the more complete teams in 2020 in the NFL. But Big Ben getting the ball out really fast this year. He'll still throw the ball down the field, but he has to do it immediately, just like Drew Brees and a lot of those rhythm one-step fades. But I just thought that was kind of interesting. A guy that usually would hold on to the ball over the last couple of years has really made an emphasis to get it out. But that might be because of his age and that shoulder injury that uh, obviously kept him out last year. I mean, that's what, like, I, when we played them, you know, when the Eagles played the Steelers a couple weeks ago, I was like, look, watching uh, 
yeah, Pittsburgh, they wanted to get the ball out immediately for Big Ben. It wasn't even just against the Eagles. I mean, that was uh, on tape. The ball was out very, very quickly. He was rarely holding on to the football, and that allowed, uh, you know, and that's why I think, we, you know, that offensive line has gotten a lot of love, and, and there are some good players on, on that line for sure, but that's allowed some young players that have come in, some inexperienced guys. You know, obviously they've got the rookie Kevin Dotson playing at right guard now. Uh, Chapuma Okorafor is playing at right tackle. Uh, he's getting his first real substantial action, and they, look, they've been allowed to uh you know the the numbers have looked pretty good for them because big ben's getting the ball out very very quickly and and that's obviously that's that that is working right now for that offense and for those pass catchers dim those lights we're headed to the film room for the scouting report all right Ben. let's talk about our scouting report and as i mentioned earlier i wanted to focus in on defensive tackle Dexter Lawrence, the Giants' first-round pick last year in 2019. It was one of a couple of first-round picks that they had there. Obviously, they took Daniel Jones, and then they took the, the Georgia corner, DeAndre Baker, late in the first round as well. Uh, Baker no longer with the team after an off-field incident this offseason. But uh, Dexter Lawrence has really turned into a nice player uh, for them. This guy, he's got the ability to dismantle run games, um, you know, and then impact the quarterback as well. It should, I'll let you kick things off here. Kind of go through some of your notes and how you viewed him coming out of Clemson just a year ago. Well, an absolute freak show, height, weight, speed guy, because he's 6'4", 340, and does not look like it because he's pretty light on his feet. And early in his career at Clemson, Hit that 2016 tape, he was super explosive, super twitchy. His sack numbers were through the roof. It really reflected that. He had 48 pressures that first year at Clemson as a true freshman, seven sacks on 300 pass rush snaps. The rest of his career at Clemson, he had 51 pressures and six sacks. So in two years, 51 and six, one year, 48 and seven. That first year at Clemson, explosive, explosive player. And he should not be 330, 340 pounds with those light feet. And some of the notes I just had written down of his strengths, outstanding raw power to anchor, controls the point of attack extremely well. He's a balanced athlete, can work off of contact. He's a great job kind of redirecting as well. He, he's a strong, stout player that was really tough to move. Uh, but was a little raw, you know, and kind of unrefined in some of his pass rush moves and a couple things as well to deal with. He had the toe surgery in, the, in 2017. He had the weird suspension before the bowl game in 2018 as well. I feel like his play personality took on a little bit of a different tone late in his career at Clemson as opposed to early on in Clemson. You didn't know what you were getting, whether he was going to be that upfield interior pass rusher that really kind of fizzled his second and third year at Clemson there. But his natural pass his athleticism and just the package of player in that 6'4, 340 pound frame. Just a lot to like with that player. And they obviously did take him with the 17th overall pick. So, and that's what's really interesting to me is, you, you know, obviously, look, there was, um, you know, with Dave Gettleman, the general manager there in New York, I mean, he loves his hog mollies, right? That's always talked about every offseason. Uh, he loves those big physical powerful just giant human beings whether it's offensive line or defensive line he's just a, a big fan of those guys he kind of falls under the uh, the bill parcells world theory of there's only so many guys on the planet uh that have that kind of those kind of dimensions and move like that right so uh dexter lawrence is one of those guys the the question becomes when you take a guy like that in the top 20 at that position is he does he have the ability to impact the passing game, which we all know that I mean that's what the NFL's about. Can he impact the passing game enough to be worthy of that selection? If you thought that's what I kind of wrote down when I was watching him, is like, okay, 
if you think he could be in Dominican Sue, right? Who obviously he, he went number two overall coming out of Nebraska, and he was a monster, right? I mean, he was like in the Heisman voting at the, as a defensive tackle. This guy was a monster up front and was a freak show from an athleticism, pure explosiveness standpoint. I didn't think Lawrence was quite there from an athleticism standpoint. I agree. Like, I mean, he ran 505 at 340. That is absurd. And so when you talk about a guy, when his, his uh, linear athleticism, his ability to get into the backfield and make plays on the other side of the line of scrimmage, he has the power. He has that explosiveness that you're looking for. It's just not like, you know, over the top. Like, you know, again, and Dominic Sue is crazy, elite, truly unique kind of physical talent. But you knew that he could at least be like Damon Harrison, Linval Joseph, you know, Brandon Williams, really, uh, you know, one of the elite run stuffers in the NFL. So you knew he had that potential. My, my question for you is, do you view a guy that's – let's just say that that's all he is, you know, five, six, seven years from now. If he is Linval Joseph, is that a win for you in the top 20? Yeah, that's a really good question, and that's putting the value on, you know, being a strong run defender, which typically don't get taken in the first round to be a one-dimensional player. Yeah. And over the last 10 years in the first round, you have, you know, Vita Vea, Danny yep. Shetland, Kenny Clark, and that's about it. Everybody else had some sort of pass rush upside. Even the big guys like Vernon Butler and, you know, Sheldon Rankins and Chris Jones, those all had the idea of being pass rush upside guys. So it's this whole conversation on if he's a dominant stout run plugger, is that worthy of a first round pick if he doesn't give you a whole lot in the pass game? Now, Kenny Clark, I think, has ascended into being a good pass rusher, but Danny Shelton is what he is and Vita Vea is what he is. And I think Dexter Lawrence also is what he is. And it's whether you value that trait and that style of defensive tackle, which seems to be kind of a dying breed. They would much rather that upfield disruptor that's a little more light on his feet, maybe can't hold up on a double team like Grady Jarrett's, but he's going to fall into 12 sacks for you, you know, on third downs. And you feel like you're getting more return on your investment when you see those sack totals as opposed to a two-yard run stuff on first down that maybe isn't as sexy and impactful on the film, in the stat sheet, whatever it is. So it's a really interesting conversation. And it's why you see guys fall all the time, whether it's Lucky Fotu falling to the fourth round or a guy that I really liked, Andrew Billings, coming out of Baylor a couple years ago, where I'm sitting there looking at the first round like he's coming off soon, he's coming off soon. Where did he end up going? Like the fourth or the fifth round. And I had to take a step back and say, what did I miss on this kid? What am I not seeing that the NFL collectively isn't appreciating of these style of players? And they're all kind of in the same conversation here. And Danny Shelton is an interesting one because he was a first-round pick of the Cleveland Browns. And I think with what, within a couple of years, uh, he was jettisoned from that team. He ends up in New England and becomes a, role, a good role player for them. And now, now he's, well, he's in Detroit now, right? Isn't he in Detroit yeah. Lions or is he still in New England? But either way, he's staying in that system. And in that, in that system, because of all the different fronts, we talked about this at the top of the show, they mix, mix and match uh, different personnel groupings in the defensive front. On third down, those guys typically aren't on the field. And I, I'm going to be interested to see, with, as Dexter Lawrence continues to you know, grow as a player and evolve as a player, you know, in year three, year four, year five, is he going to be on the field on third down? Or are they going to be, you know, by, as they've kind of evolved in the system under Patrick Graham and Joe Judge, are there going to be other guys that say, yeah, these are the guys that we want on third down. We want uh, Dalvin Tomlinson. We want to make sure that B.J. Hill is on the field for as often as, as possible on third down. Leonard Williams is our guy on third down. 
And I think that that's going to be really interesting. Now, with Dexter Lawrence, obviously, Joe Judge was not the, the head coach when he was drafted. Patrick Graham was not the defensive coordinator when he was drafted. But he does happen to fit in very well with what they look for on the defensive line. We mentioned those traits that Patrick Graham looks for. They look for toughness. They look for knee bend. They look for gap integrity. Dexter Lawrence brings all of that in spades, and he's a big, strong guy that has that ability to fit really well in that defensive system. And we might as well just kind of initiate the conversation we had at the at top of the week on a, our journey to the draft podcast with myself, you, and Dane Brugler talking about big stout Georgia defensive tackle Jordan Davis, where yeah. I said, you know, he might be the biggest, strongest, best run defender in the country. No pass rush upside. So my question was, where does that get you drafted? Yep. And I, I ran off a bunch of run-plugging nose tackles that the average fans maybe not even know who Steve McClendon is that actually was just traded from the Jets to the Bucks two days ago or Daniel McCullers or those big plugging nose tackles that aren't on your fantasy teams and don't make a whole lot of splash plays in the backfield. If you're the best of the best of the best at that position, where does that get you drafted? What's that value? Yeah. Yeah, and in the pecking order of the draft, unfortunately – the way the NFL values it, it's really kind of a third, fourth round type of pick. And that's why it's really interesting to look at Dexter Lawrence, what he showed early in his college career that, hey, I can be a fleet of foot up the field quarterback hunter too. It obviously was a little few and far between his next two years. As I think he got a little heavier and stronger, he lost that twitch. But if you can't prove that I'm a quarterback hunter, or at least I can collapse the pocket and prove to stay on the field on third down, I just don't know if you have value of being a first round pick. And since, uh, you know, he's been drafted, he has been on the field on third down for the Giants. So mostly as, you know, a bull rusher and, you know, a packet, a pocket collapser, but that's okay. There's a, there's a place for that as well. No question. Well, really great stuff there, uh, Ben. Really appreciate you joining us once again here on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast. Stay tuned for Ben a little bit later this week as well in a couple of days here on the Journey to the Draft podcast driven by AAA, as Ben alluded to earlier. We catch up with Ben twice a week over on that show. You can find that wherever podcasts we found. Ben, thanks so much, man. We'll talk to you here next week. Don't miss your chance to be in the stands at Lincoln Financial Field this season with an Eagles fan cutout. Put on your game day best and upload a photo of yourself so that you can still join us on game days. Fan cutouts printed by Rico are only $100 with net proceeds benefiting Eagles Autism Foundation. Your purchase will also waive the registration fee for the 2021 Eagles Autism Challenge event. Order yours at PhiladelphiaEagles.com slash cutouts. Before we keep going with this episode, it is really important to me that I talk about voting. Now, uh, depending on when you're listening to this episode, we are just two weeks away from Election Day. And that deadline to register to vote has very likely passed in your state. Last week here on the show, I talked about mail-in voting and why it's both perfectly safe and perfectly legal to fill out a mail-in ballot. So this week, I wanted to talk about the importance of voting. There's been a lot of discussion about how important the 2020 election is. Why is that? Not only is it a presidential election where we will figure out a new president, a new vice president, but voters will also choose 11 governors, 35 U.S. senators, 435 members of the U.S. House of Representatives, as well as hundreds of state and local officials. That's just from an individual candidate standpoint. But then you start thinking about what you're voting for. What are the issues that are important to you? 
when you're voting at the national level, you're making your opinion heard on issues like national security, global policy, international commerce, taxes, medicine and food safety standards, the postal service, the list goes on and on. Then you go down to the state level. That's where you're voting on issues like public education, auto insurance, highway maintenance, environmental protection at both the state on state land and then even things like fishing and hunt, hunting licenses. Then you get down to the local level, and that's where things like school lunches, uh, local judges, police, recreation programs for kids, uh, housing and zoning, public transportation, public services. Not all of these issues are going to be important to every single one of you listening at home, but some of them are, right? And at every low le- level of government, there are things that either impact your day-to-day life, uh, they may align with your views on society, or impact the bottom line for you at the end of the day or at the end of the tax season, right? So remember, 100 million eligible voters did not participate in the general election four years ago. Please do what you can to help lower that number. It is all of our civic duty to make sure that we get out and all of our voices are heard. Get out and vote on November 3rd. Great stuff there from Ben, who you can follow on Twitter, just like I do, at Ben Fennel underscore NFL. And while you're at it, I'm at Eagles XOs. That's where I post all of our podcasts and all of our X's and O's content that we produce at PhiladelphiaEagles.com. And you know I greatly appreciate everybody that promotes this podcast on all forms of social media. That's one way to support the show. But the best way is to go on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, leave us a rating, or even leave us a comment. And I want to give a shout-out to somebody who did exactly that. They left a nice little comment on there, and that's Corey47. One left us that five-star rating saying great podcast for all Eagles fans out there and then talked about all the reasons why he loves the show. So thanks so much to Corey. Thanks so much to Ben. Thanks so much to all of you out there for your continued support of this show and all the rest of our podcast offerings on PhiladelphiaEagles.com. All that being said, I think that'll do it. Another show in the books here on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast fueled by Gatorade. For everybody here at the Novacare Complex, I am Fran Duffy. We'll talk to you next week.